Welcome to Mother's Project. I'm Ariel Avery. In this episode, I speak with a woman who grew up living all over the world, but she ultimately chose to live out the entirety of her adult life staying put in the foothills of the Colorado Rockies. Her family is large and has continued to grow for over 20 years. She had her first child at a very young age, but it didn't stop her academic pursuits. Rather, it made her a more focused and serious student that helped shape the work she brought back into the world. At the time, she didn't know that life with a newborn around would help define most of her adult experience. I'm Daisy McGowan, and I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My family is myself and my partner, Don Bodness who's also an artist um, and a curator. And um, together we have, uh, I'll start with youngest to oldest. So <laughs> our, our newest addition, our, our um, son together, Dean Cedar, Vodnis McGowan. He is seven months old. And then uh, our next oldest is Lucy Ann. And um, that's Don's daughter from his first marriage. Um, and my stepdaughter. And, uh, and then my son, my older son, Jesse. And then my oldest, my firstborn, Ruby, and um, Jesse and Ruby um, were from my first marriage, which lasted 18 years. So the work that I do, I'm trained as an artist and a curator, and I have for the past nine years served as the director of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs Galleries of Contemporary Art. But I Mm -hmm. am the chief curator, so I curate and dream up the exhibitions and programs, which is my favorite part of the job. And then also we talk about creating community through experiences with contemporary art. Daisy came from a family of eight kids to bohemian parents who never played the traditional parenting game. Born in Italy, Daisy saw much of the world with her family before she even got to high school. They spent time living in the mountains of Colorado in her early years, and she found herself being drawn there again for college. So when I got to college, I went to um, a small private liberal arts college in Colorado Springs called Colorado College. She had been offered several full-ride scholarships from small colleges around the country. But really what got me was Colorado. I had grown up all over the world, um, but we did live in Colorado for a time in the mountains. And there's just something about the scent of the pines and the blue skies, the the quality of the sun here. She made good grades and was drawn towards studying art, following, in part, in the footsteps of her artist father. She was also learning to navigate all the intense relationships one develops in their college years. And then the one thing that many young women imagine with dread happened to her. When I got pregnant, I was a junior in college, um, and I had been dating my previous um, husband just for a short time. And so I met him, and of course, um, being a junior in college really wasn't thinking much about marriage and having children. And mm-hmm. so my life definitely like shifted directions um, at that point. Um, and I just decided to completely embrace it and, and go for it, which... You know, it was really pretty upsetting to my family. I can totally understand having a daughter that age now, um, mm-hmm. how how hard that would have been for them to see. Um, but I, I just committed, um, and 
I think whatever age you become a mother, uh, it's a, it's almost like the old you has to die and a new person emerges, you know, mm, who, yeah, it's, it's a, um, there's almost, I don't want to use the word trauma, but it's, uh, it's a major shift. Right. And mm-hmm. so, um, I think whether that happens for you at 40 or 20, um, it's going to be tough to be a parent mm-hmm. for the first time. But then for me, you know, I was young, um, and I, I think the benefit of that age is you sort of just go for things and, and don't have the chance to really overthink things maybe. And so my family, you know, pushing me and saying, oh, you're going to ruin your life, you know, with this choice really drove me to prove them all wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, so were they actually bringing out the possibility of abortion? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a... Um, I think that they were basically asking if I would just consider that. And um, for personal reasons, I said no. Daisy's parents had never met the father of her future baby and were faced with the decision to accept or reject this shocking life choice. Ultimately, they accepted her choice and Daisy and her partner were married before the birth of their firstborn, Ruby. We've talked in a couple previous episodes with moms who had babies at young ages. There seems to be this commonality between these women's stories with regard to the way the medical staff moved them into undesirable birthing scenarios. Daisy's first birth follows suit with this trend. Right at the end, at transition, you know, I I, I had a pretty quick labor. Um, I got in the hospital at 9.30, or sorry, at... Um, 3.30, and she was born at 9.30 p.m., and so wow. you know, six hours. And <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, and so um, I um, moved pretty quickly, you know, from my water breaking and not really feeling anything to this point of transition, which, mm-hmm. you know, the Internet didn't exist, and I had read a lot, but I feel like the more you can know about that period is that it's a very sensitive period, and mm-hmm. you're very um, sort of impressionable almost. Mm-hmm. And the message I got from the nurse was, would you like something for the pain? Um, Which, of course, like they just shouldn't even have asked if I said I want a natural birth. And so I said, well, yeah, okay, because it was pretty (laughs) intense. And and then, of course, it just like went to my head. And I was so frustrated that I said yes, because I I had these principles I was trying to hold up. And, you know. One, one thing a 21 year old is anything but is principled they you know you have these very black and white view of the world um and she was born um very soon after that and um didn't seem to have any adverse effect but um you know there was always that sort of like frustration that I felt like I was bullied into something because I was young and so actually right. I think the powerful experience of her birth um of I just felt like, wow, now I'm really like, I felt like I was in a special club, (laughs) you know, of all the women who've gone through birth, like, oh, I really understand this. It's amazing. And then I became really obsessed with the birth industry and the history and my practice, my sculpture practice um, became very research based at that point. That's interesting. So before the birth, you didn't necessarily have a research engagement in your work that existed? I hadn't connected the two, you know, honestly, I'd done, I knew how to research from, I I was a 
uh, like I said, a literature major. You know, I, I, I was a really strong student. I, I'm a strong writer, and um, I knew how to write um, and research. But I had never connected to a visual art practice. And actually, I had a very influential course in my final year with an artist named Stokely Tolles, who's mostly a performance artist out of New York. And he introduced this approach with research. And for me, it just clicked. It made so much sense. And I still, to this day, will start a new series with um, extensive reading, becoming really kind of obsessive about a topic. It's not necessarily that I'm going to write a paper on it, although I certainly could, and I write as part of my curatorial practice, um, but it, it manifests in different ways. I've posted a lot about the creative surge women, including myself, have experienced as a result of becoming a mother. This newfound interest in intensive research was Daisy's creative surge. A drive to understand the science behind birth, which led her to develop a depth of research in her creative work she hadn't felt compelled to do before. For me, you know, going through the process of um, birth uh, and pregnancy was so powerful and had so much impact on my art practice. Perhaps this set the stage for her future life's trajectory. Can you talk a little bit more about how you navigated entering the art world with um, a five-month-old and, and growing daughter? And just, like, what what did the daily life look like, and how did you navigate it, especially when you had to be doing these trips out to New York? Yeah, well, it was, honestly, I was very worried that I was sort of going through the motions with this degree, and I wasn't going to be able to do anything. I I didn't know that I was going to be able to be an artist. And I actually think that is true for all young artists. They don't quite know how they can possibly do this because there's no clear path sort of laid out for for artists, you know. And so those examples are so important. And when we went on that New York trip, we visited the studio of Nancy Sparrow and Leon Golub, and Nancy Sparrow talked to us, and I just... I'm a big fan of her work, and it's definitely had a, a strong influence on my own practice. Um, but more so than even that, the fact that she told me that she raised three boys with her husband, with you know, in this studio and living space, and to just just see that, you know, and then and then it helped me to really look back at my own examples. Oh, my parents were artists, and they traveled all over the world, and they had no money, and they did that. Um, Ruby was five months old. Every senior uh, would, was expected to go to New York for a week, and it's you know studio visits with professional artists, wow. um, um, basically trying to set you up for your professional career after you, right. know, you graduate. Um, and her dad, you know, he took care of her for that week while I was gone, and um, mm-hmm. we just I don't know, we just sort of went for it. Like all new mothers, Daisy had to learn about this new balancing act she was trying to accomplish between her family and her schooling. There were points when I would have like a, a solo exhibition, and I'd be in the studio all, every night after bedtime, which is you know, and then all weekend long, and I and then I'd be working, and I feel like this is just too much. I I feel like I am just taking and not you know giving back to my family. Uh, if it can feel really out of balance um, because 
the truth about a studio practice is it requires so much um, time alone. I would go to class from 9 to noon, then I would, and, and my daughter would be with her father. Uh, he was doing a startup business. And then I would go pick um, her up and take care of her until the end of the work day. And then he'd come home, we'd have a quick dinner, and then I would head into the studio often until 2 or 3 in the morning wow. and then barely get any sleep uh, on top of having a baby. So, you know, I That's think so intense. I'm really glad I was like 21 years old. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the great thing about that intense experience is it, it set me up for when I did have those exhibits coming up. And now um, the way I work, you know, sort of intensely before an exhibition is opening to sort of just have the capacity to handle that. Um, yeah. And, um, and so in some ways, being a mother while I was being a student um, really expanded, like, well, you know what? I can work at this this hard. It's actually possible. Can you talk more specifically um, about some of the exhibitions you've curated in which you felt this connection to the work or to the artist through this shared experience of motherhood? Yeah, well, I think um, really just even parenthood, you know, whenever I would encounter mm -hmm. artists that were parents, um, that that actually meant a lot to me. You know, early on, I had some academic advice, which was from older generations of women to actually completely hide the fact that I had children if I was going to try to get academic jobs, not make it, um, certainly not make it the focus of your artwork. Like there was some shame in that. And right. I just, I really rejected that. What did we fight for, for, you know, <laughs> what were these feminist yeah, yeah. principles if we have to like pretend we're men basically, or, or maybe not even men, but this version of professional that doesn't have children, that doesn't have a family. And I have right. to say, I think the millennials, you know, I were the first millennial uh, employee that I hired. I was so grateful to her for sort of showing me like, uh, no, we're going to be really honest that we have a life outside of work and we're going to embrace that. And we're going to have a little more balance and flexibility and then we're going to work really hard too and get it all done. Nancy Sparrow, of course, was, like I mentioned, my my very first influence of an artist who lived her life fully embracing her family and um, also, like, just fearless with her principles and, and the work she was presenting is so searingly uh, powerful, politically charged, mm -hmm. um, feminist, um, and just non unapologetic about any of it, you know? I am a mother. Mm -hmm. I am an artist. I am all of these things. I think I um, I came to the to my curatorial practice from an approach of really supporting the whole artist and understanding um, sort of what does it take to um, to take that leap into making new work. I can think of a couple projects. I worked with um, Senga Nangudi, and Senga uh, has lived in Colorado Springs for many years. Um, she has recently received a lot of attention for um, her work and her early role in the black arts movement um, in the late 70s and 80s, working with um, Marin Hassinger as a collaborator, and then uh, other artists like David Hammonds, who are quite well known now. Um, and then sort of just, you know, making work that 
um, stemmed out of her experience of becoming a mother and the way the body changes and moves. And she incorporates mm. dance into her wor- her sculptural works. Um, there are these sort of pantyhose um, that stretch and are filled by uh, sand in different configurations, sort of the way the body stretches and moves. But also on a very practical level, I love that she, you know, she talked about, um, well, here was a material that I could sort of work on anywhere because when you have young mm-hmm. children, you're, you know, challenged to have that studio time and um, was affordable, you know, because that's a, a legitimate um, concern for young artists. It's like, how do you mm-hmm. afford this? And then um, was sort of really portable. You know, there's a lot of privilege in being able to be a printmaker or a, a painter. You know, you need to have these sort of spaces that can support um, the infrastructure of what you're trying to do. And a lot of my early work was actually just made on the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Another artist I worked with, Eko Otake, Eko and Koma, uh, very well-known movement artists, and Eko branched off to do um, solo work, and I, I worked with her on her first solo show. Um, so we did an exhibition of photographs, and um, she had collaborated with um, William Johnston to photograph her um, dance reaction to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, and they actually went into the disaster site. Um, she's a mother. She is just a, a powerful artist. Uh, our our uh, current exhibition features Vadis Turner. Vadis is a Nashville-based artist. Um, she lived for many years, uh, over a decade in New York, and before that, Boston, and recently went back mm-hmm. to Nashville. And she is a, a mother, and her, her two young sons, um, they all uh, and her husband are all out there in Nashville now. Um, and I just find so much personal connection, which doesn't always happen for me as a curator. Um, usually the way I curate, I see as a complementary practice to my own visual art practice. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there's an assumption often that I would curate exactly what kind of art I would make, you know. <laughs> and often yeah. I can go in a very different direction, and, and uh-huh. um, that's most interesting to me. But I will say with Vadis's work that I did personally really connect um, to a lot of the uh, work she was making. Do you feel like motherhood as a subject or a theme coming into contemporary art is still taboo in larger, higher art circles? Or do you, I mean, do you feel like maybe certain regions are more receptive to that and accepting of that where other regions or circles are not? Well, I think that it's still challenging. It's sort of lumped in with like nostalgic art a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't make any sense to me because, uh, you know, it's like the experience of, um, well, we're all born of a mother, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it seems like it's actually there in so so much of the art we look at um, from different viewpoints. And why wouldn't we have acceptance for it coming from the viewpoints of the mothers? Um you know, I think the older generation, like I mentioned, of artists and academics really, you know, cautioned. And they saw firsthand, you know, being sort of sidelined and waylaid if you were, if you just decided to become a parent. There's a lot of, a lot of history of older women artists who chose to not be parents. And hey, that's totally um, great. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think everybody has to be a parent to, you know, have a full life experience, obviously. But for those who are to sort of feel like, oh, game over, you know, you don't get to be taken seriously anymore. I just really, I, I, I'm pretty heartened to see a lot of artists in particular pushing back on that and curators, you know. But women, I do think, um, obviously, there's strong research 
backing up that, that they're challenged already, you know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the art world to be taken seriously, to be given opportunities. Even with all the progress we've made in the 21st century towards equal rights for women in the workplace, we continue to see discrimination that happens against mothers in particular. If you follow women in the arts, you may remember the incident of Nikki Columbus suing MoMA PS1 in 2018 after having a job as curator rescinded when they found out she had recently given birth. This incident may be a magnified and prosecutable version of what many, if not most, women have experienced surrounding their transition to motherhood. But the nuanced discrimination women experience can be equally as damaging when they are advised to rethink their commitment to their jobs. I had some comments made to me when I, you know, um, announced my pregnancy about a year ago. Um, oh, that's it for you. You're going to leave the profession. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Sort of, really? Yeah. And these are from older, older folks that wow. I think lived in a time when that was true. And I was really offended. In many ways, new mothers really rely on the support from their partners and family to continue the work they're doing at a similar level of rigor. When she met Don, she may not have known at the time that he was going to provide this incredible paternal support structure for her and their baby. Well, we first worked together professionally, so I often say I fell in love with this art first. And uh, we were not uh, romantically interested in each other. We were very professional, and we just were working together on a solo exhibition of his work at my gallery. So that's how I got to know him. And with the hearts of two artists coming together... They found a passion for supporting each other. And that kind of passion ultimately has to lead to more, right? I just want to know how you and Don decided to have another baby, if you could just talk about that moment a little bit. Yeah, well, um, falling in love with Don and um, meeting him... We both happened to be going through divorce from 18-year marriages at the same time, and we both had gotten married pretty young, um, and he had become a parent sort of later in life, and I obviously um, started out uh, my adult life as a parent. Uh, so we had some differences, but uh, we had so many similarities, and uh, I just really fell very much in love with each other. But at that point, when we were first dating, we both said to each other that we were not going to have uh, more children. We were sort of not interested in that. Things sort of shifted for us uh, about three years in, and um, I just, I don't know, it, it doesn't really have a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of logic basing to any time you become a parent, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, I think you just sort of have to take a leap, and it seemed like we both sort of shifted at a similar time towards having a, a more blended life, um, and we um, I think it was me who said to him, you know, wouldn't it be so beautiful to have a child together and maybe let's just like give it a, a go. We had gotten engaged to each other and, um, just were, you know, totally head over heels in love. And, mm-hmm. um, there's just something so beautiful about having a child with, you know, the person you're so deeply in love with. And so then we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll give it a go. And I really didn't expect it to happened and then it happened very quickly and oh, was wow. <laughs> amazing um, and sort of terrifying.
Pregnant at the age of 40, Daisy found herself exposed to a whole new paranoia coming from her OB. Some of those uh, issues that come up with those choices you have um, going through a pregnancy when you're over 40, um, and sort of the anxiety that's like projected onto you. The anxiety stemmed from more than just Daisy's age. And I had had a C-section with my second baby. Perhaps just 20 years ago, a 40-year-old woman trying to have a vaginal birth after C-section, or VBAC, would have scared most OBs. But thanks to progress in obstetrics, these scenarios have become increasingly normalized, and women like Daisy can still have their dream births. I, I really felt strongly about doing a VBAC, and so I found a doctor that supported that. You know, that feeling of having agency in your birth, um, mm-hmm. I think for Don and I both, you know, was it just meant so much. And he was such a fierce champion for that. You know, even with uh, the first doctor we saw was sort of bossing me around. He said, well, you're over 40, so we're not going to let you go a second past your due date. And Don said, that's just not okay. And so we found a doctor that um, was in the traditional practice of OB, you know, obstetrics and gynecology, but who um, was really embraced by the midwife community and beloved. And then for the first time, I had a, a doula, and our doula was our hypnobirthing teacher. And I, um, she, you know, talked about really making it possible for Don and I to have this really powerful shared birth experience. And what we really decided that I thought was so powerful with the birth uh, was to have our children there, all of them. And oh, really? I was oh pretty, gosh. yeah, I was very, like, at first, like, no, we wouldn't do that. Like, I can't be a parent and get birth at the same time, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought about it, and I thought, my God, if they're comfortable with it, so we gave them the option to be there or not, you know, it wasn't forced. Um, what a special experience, you know. Wow. And everybody sort of had a role. And so my daughter, Ruby, was our birth photographer, and um, she helped make the space just really calm and, and really beautiful. Um, and, um, she was, she's a uh, photographer and so she had an interest in that. So it was really lovely to have her in that role. And then, Mm -hmm. um, my older son, Jesse, he had the job of sort of putting in some essential oils on my feet and cool wash rags, Mm. but we also, you know, respected he's a teenage boy. And so he had a position where he could kind of have, um, a different view of things, but he was in the room with us. And then Lucy was, you know, she's so young. She was still six years old at that point. And Mm -hmm. so she was there with Grandma and um, was there to, you know, uh, experience the birth, but wasn't there for the the whole time. Breathing. Staying in the calm space of the hypnobirth, surrounded by their children. What could possibly be better promotion for giving birth later in life, even if it's been 20 years since your first? I breathed Dean, you know, down, out, um, through the birth canal, like, in a, yeah. it was about three hours. It was pretty quick. Wow. Um, but uh, we really did that together. You know, I literally was leaning on him, holding him, and um, I was um, wrapped, my arms were wrapped around his neck when Dean was born.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Mother's Project. You can see images of Daisy's work and find a link to her website at mothersprojectpodcast.com. I'm always looking for new stories from mothers about their mother's project, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Follow us at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mother's Project Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Our theme music was written and performed by Matt Rowan. Other music was by the Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosevere. <laughs>